Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Two words in Jane Matinere's newscast. Two little words that should never appear in a newscast in the last week in April. Wintry mix. Did you hear that? A wintry mix may be expected later on in the day. A wintry mix. I mean, it's almost May 1st, for goodness sakes. Where is where is this global warming that I keep hearing about? Where has it been all spring? And I understand people say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just I'm just telling you, give me 10 degrees. The average Average high is supposed to be 59. We're not going to get anywhere close to that, and who knows when this is going to change. All right, let us get right to it. A lot of ground to cover on today's program. Let us get started. Joe Biden's approval numbers are in the tank. Most polls show that he is polling below 40 percent. I understand there's some people who don't understand how that could be, but that is just the reality. And the election in November is looking like a debacle for Democrats. Now, who knows? Lots of stuff can happen between now and then. But I don't get the idea that this uh, administration really has a clear idea how to deal with inflation. There's no indication that the war in Ukraine is going to go away anytime soon. You've got the supply chain shortages. You've got the problems at the border. And I don't think any of those problems are going to be solved between now and November. So you're going to be looking at an electorate, which is, well, just kind of angry. So if you're Joe Biden and you're some Democrats and you're trying to avoid having what looks like is going to happen, happen, you're trying to figure out how to grasp at straws. And yesterday, Apparently, the president tipped off one of the things that he says he might do. Now, we have talked about this before, but it's starting to become a reality. Apparently, in a meeting with a a subset of the Democratic caucus, he was in front of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Biden said that he was seriously considering forgiving student loans. And this has been talked about before. Chuck Schumer wants him to do it. Elizabeth Warren wants him to do it. And Biden, I I think, has been on the fence of this. First issue, of course, is last time I checked, I didn't think we had kings in this country. I, I didn't think that you could have a president that uniformly says, all right, we've got $1.7 trillion that has been borrowed. We're just going to forgive it without having the matter go to Congress. Because if it goes to Congress, it's not going to get passed. But anyhow, Biden is apparently now talking seriously about this. People who have federal student loans have not been required to make a payment since March of 2020. So it's now been more than two years, and the most recent moratorium on making student loan payments extends, I think, till the end of August. I think that's where it is now. And the word is that Biden is, whether he has the legal authority to do it or not, his plan is to roll out some form of student loan forgiveness. It might be $10,000. It might be $50,000. It might be wiping out 
everybody's student loan. So in other words, if you are from an upper class or upper middle class family, you went to the University of Pennsylvania, you have accumulated $200,000 in student loans to get your advanced degree, well, okay, the government might be willing to forgive that. And one of the arguments that's being made behind closed doors is, look, this is a way to energize young voters. It's the the ultimate, let's give them money. If all of a sudden we can go to the voters in November and say, look at what we did. We made all your student debt go away. Here, now go vote for us. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. First of all, I think this is wrong on so many levels. Secondly, I don't believe that it's going to be the boon to voters that apparently some Democrats seem to think. Because, yes, there will be some people that are glad to wake up one morning and find, if it's legal to do this, to find that their debt has has somehow gone away. But there's going to be a lot of other people, maybe a lot more people, who sit there and recognize that it is unfair, first of all, to shift the burden When somebody has taken a loan in good faith, it's unfair to say, all right, now the taxpayers, including retirees on fixed income or people who work to go through college or people who struggled and saved to send their kids through college, that they now have to pick up the tab for the college loans that other people ended up taking out. So for every one person who wakes up and says, hey, that's great. I've just been given this this great gift. I've been bought off. I've been bribed. Now I'm going to go vote. I think there might be two people who say, wait a second, this is not right because you're passing the burden on to me. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The political, the dire political situation that Biden finds himself in right now is apparently one of the things that is motivating this. So let's tee this up. All right. Should, before the the election in November, should the government, assuming for the sake of argument it can, forgive $10,000 in student debt, $50,000 in student debt, wipe out everybody's student debt. The argument is, hey, wouldn't this be great? You've taken out these loans. Now you don't have to pay them off. You can do all sorts of other things with them. I think there would be an incredible backlash to this. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, there is incredible pressure being brought on Joe Biden to try to do something which will change where it looks like the election's trajectory is going. One of the big pushes he's getting is come out and forgive student loans. The idea being if you forgive student loans, you'll have so many young people that will just be so very happy that all of a sudden they woke up and this debt that they took on is gone that they'll rush out and they'll vote for Democrats. Well, first of all, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to be the result. But secondly, that doesn't change the fact, even assuming you have the legal authority to do it, which I don't believe, I don't think that's the right thing to do. And as a matter of fact, I think there's going to be a huge backlash. What do you say? to all the people that worked and saved to send their kids through school. Now, you know, or they made the decision, people, whether it's the kids or the the parents, made the decision to send their child to a less expensive school because they didn't want their kid burdened with debt. What about the people who, uh, again, made the decision to forego college, you know, and have been working 
Um, now they're supposed to pick up the tab for people, maybe even upper class people or upper middle class people who have accumulated student debt. I mean, is, is that really an electoral winner? Moreover, is it right? And if you're somebody who did things the right way, paid back your student loan, worked to send yourself through college, if all of a sudden we turn around and forgive all this debt, what does that make you? Just an all-day sucker? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jason. Jason, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, yeah, I totally disagree with Biden and the Democrats with this. Um, you know, I, I don't think that this is the, the best way to go about it. Um, my daughter just graduated um, this last year from UW-Madison. And before that uh, college decision, she actually wanted to go to a college in Boston, a private college. And we had to sit her down and we had a, we called the ledger talk. Um, we're saying that, you know, we can't afford a full ride, you know, to put you through UW-Madison or the college in Boston. Yeah. And she made that choice to take out the student loans for what we could not cover on our end. And she knows that that's her responsibility. And even through college, she was paying the interest rate or the interest on the loans, knowing that that stuff is going to accumulate. Yeah, because we sat down and had that talk with her. I mean, we—I feel like we were responsible enough to educate her on this, and she knows that this is her responsibility. Now, would she like her student loans to be forgiven? Absolutely. Sure. You know, I, so, I'd like—I'd like, I'd like know, my car payments to go away. I'd like—I think most people would like their Absolutely. mortgage payments to go away. Of course, that would give us extra Absolutely. money to spend on other things, but it doesn't make it right. Yeah, it doesn't. It no. doesn't. I totally disagree, and I hope that you—that I. That I hope the, the same way you feel is that this does not go through, because no. I think it is very unfair to a lot of people in this country. Well, right, Thank, including the idea that, okay, this is $1.6 trillion that we're talking about if all the loans would be forgiven, but, but still, you're talking about an enormous amount of money. How is it fundamentally fair, for example, to, let, let's take the kid that went to the Ivy League school, who, who went to Penn, who now has, you know, big-time student debt. How is it fair to say to, to that kid who, who's graduated with a degree from from Penn or or wherever, Rutgers or wherever, how is it fair to say, okay, we're going to give you a free pass, and then we're going to look at, I don't know, all the, the middle-class families in this country or all the retirees who are on fixed incomes, you are now going to have to pick up the tab for that kid who made the decision to, to go to Penn. I mean, and then what do you do moving forward? I mean, does this, does this effectively mean that we're going to cancel out all the student debt that we have now so so does that mean that, um, again, we're just going to pick up the tab for, for all the colleges? Or, or what if you've got a kid going to school next year? Can you take out those student loans? You know, should, why should, should that kid who's going next year, should they take out a student loan and be burdened by that moving forward when we've already said to everybody else who's taken out student loans? No, this is just, it is a Pandora's box on so many levels. And the thing that's the most frustrating about this is, is this isn't even subtle. This is an effort at vote buying in the extreme. And by the way, we're supposedly concerned about inflation. Somebody sent me this note yesterday. So why do you think the econ- why do you think it's fair to blame the problems with the economy with Biden? Because pretty much everything Biden has done for the last year plus has been wrong. <laughs> and you want to talk about something that's going to just if inflation is bad now at eight and a half percent, you suddenly say, okay, you forget we're going to just have the taxpayers pick up the tab for one point six trillion dollars. You take all that other money and you just start spending on whatever you want. You think inflation is bad now. You just wait. Wait till then. 855-616-1620. Sue in New Berlin. Sue, you're on WTMJ. 
Well, Jeff, I just want to know what Biden is going to make of this business where the kids that signed up to be in the service to get an education, you know, that, I mean, how mm-hmm. does he plan to pay them back? They signed up in the service to get a free education. Mm-hmm. So where does that fit in on all this? Well, it doesn't. They're suckers. You know, they're, they're, they're still presumably going to be obligated to do it, but all the other people aren't. It, it's everybody that's been paying back their debts or making commitments or changing their plans to go to more affordable schools. Uh, they're, they're all they're all chumps, Sue. They're just all they're they're all chumps. They should have just waited till Joe Biden, old King Joe, got into office and he'd take care of all this. No, th- th- thanks for the call. I mean, it's, it's you know, th- this is it. Jeff, why are student loans the issue? More could be done by eliminating mortgages. The Dems are targeting young people. If you're not a Democrat when you're young, you have no heart. If you're not a Republican when you're old, older, you have no brain. Well, well, that's th- that's exactly it. And this is, like I say, this is pandering in, in the extreme, and it's not even subtle. There, we, the idea is we've got to turn stuff around. The polls are looking really bad. Let's have a game changer. Now, again, I keep going back to this. I don't understand legally how you can the, – the president without Congress can just say, we're going to forgive this. We're going to stop collecting legitimate debt. And if you can, that, that's a pretty scary concept. That's a pretty scary idea of executive power that you can just forget about it. It's one thing to delay it. I mean, we've delayed mortgage payment, um, student loan payments for, for over two years now. And I understand why they did it at the start of the pandemic. I I get it. There is no justification now not to start collecting student loans. And the only reason we are doing this is because of the political purposes, trying to buy votes at the expense of all the other taxpayers that are out there. Now, if you want to talk about the student loan crisis, I I think there's things we could be discussing. And I've said this before. Maybe you want to look at refinancing. Okay, right now, a lot of the interest rates are, are bad. They're, they're not quite as bad as they were before interest rates have started going up recently. But, okay, maybe you could look at a plan that would say, look, we're not going to forgive the student loan debt, but what we will do is we'll consider allowing you to refinance at a rate that's closer to the market rate so that the loan payments become more affordable. I, I you know, if you want to talk about that, I think that's a reasonable discussion. But this idea that we're just going to wave a magic wand and say to people who have taken out loans in good faith, you now no longer have to make those payments. And I guess my question would be, why, why not make it retroactive? I've got a couple texts from people who just finished paying off either their kids' student loans or their student loans. They're saying, what, do I get my money back? Well, why shouldn't you? I mean, I said this, my late wife took out a loan to go through law school. I took out a loan to go through law school. I, where is my money. You know, why Why don't I get that money back? I mean, we took these out in good faith. We paid them all back. Why should I be treated as a chump? Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Yeah, as you said when you first started the segment, it's wrong on so many levels that you can't, I don't have enough time to say all the things that are wrong. But I will say this is right out of the Democratic playbook. LBJ said it in the 60s that he'd be having black people vote Democrat for the next 100 years. They're just trying to buy votes, and that's probably the biggest wrong thing out of it all. But there's so many, there's so many wrongs with this. 
I can't even list them all. Yeah. No, thanks for calling, Mike. There's no question. I mean, on just so many different levels. Now, like I say, if you want to talk about a plan to refinance at a closer-to-market rate, I'm open to that. I think that that would be kind of a fair discussion. But nobody, when it comes to people making decisions on these student loans, as near as I can tell, there's no evidence of anybody going to a would-be college kid or their family and putting a gun to their head and saying, here, you, you have to sign. These are, are choices that end up being made. And I think you can pass like a lot of blame on the cost of education with these universities and these colleges that just kept raising tuition and raising tuition and raising tuition because they knew that uh, the, the would-be students would just continue to borrow more and more. So I, I think there, there's a lot of people that are culpable, but nobody holds a gun to your head and says that, hey, you, you've, you've got to go to this particular private school or, or whatever. If you make that decision that you are going to borrow money to go to that school, you have an obligation to pay that loan back, period. And I, I think, I guess to me, that this entire conversation, and this should be self-evident. And how do you explain to the people that I didn't go to their favorite school. Gee, I would have really liked to go to the school, and I got accepted. But at the end of the day, like our first caller was saying, I, I just I, we couldn't afford it, so we, we had to go somewhere else. And I got my education, but it was more affordable. Or the example I always give is I, I was taken when we talked about this a while back. I had a caller who said, "Look, we I had a coworker, and we both had kids the same age, and I spent." Okay, about 15 years running up to college. I, we, we didn't go on the expensive vacations, and we didn't buy the fancy cars. We saved money, we, and we were in a position where we were able to pay for our kids' college education. But, but we sacrificed to do that. My coworker, they went on the vacations. They had the nicer cars. They spent all this stuff, and then they took out loans. So what do you say to the people that did the right thing? And look, there's nothing wrong with taking out student loans, but this expectation that you don't have to pay them back, give me a break. What do you say to the people that lived within their means, saved the money, did all that stuff so their kid could go to school, and they forgave all those things, you're just rewarding the people that, that went the other way. And this is precisely, I think, what they're looking at, and they're looking at it for political purposes, if nothing else. I don't think it's legal. And I guess that's the one consolation I have. But just because it's not legal doesn't mean they might not try to pull it off. Back with more in just a minute. Well, numbers, we have numbers. Uh, Marquette University Law School, which does polling from time to time, they are out hot off the presses with a, a new poll. And first of all, I think you always have to lead into these things with, with two comments. First of all, um, the, the accuracy of polling tends to be up in the air. I happen to believe that polls are generally reliable, particularly when you have multiple polls that come together. There are some exceptions. When it comes to dealing with issues related to Donald Trump, the, the polls completely miss it. And I don't know whether it's the fact that they they just don't find the people or the people who, for example, have positive feelings about President or former President Trump don't respond or they lie to the pollsters or whatever. But when it, when it comes to numbers related to Trump, I, I just – it's tough to believe some of them because they generally tend to underreport his his positives. But but having said that, on other sorts of issues, I think the polls give kind of an accurate barometer. And then if you add them into 
you know, just kind of the common sense things that you're seeing, you, you can kind of have some relation. For example, I don't think there's any question that, you know, you look at one poll after another that shows that Joe Biden is polling below 40 percent, and one poll after another says that, that the Biden administration, across the country at least, is is in trouble. People are unhappy with the economy. They're unhappy with the border. They're I think, disturbed with what is going on in Ukraine, and they're tending to take that all out on the incumbent. And there's a variety of other reasons as well. So here's the current Marquette University Law School poll, which just dropped. They poll in the Democratic Senate primary. Now, there are four main candidates running for the right to take on Ron Johnson. Mandela Barnes, who is the lieutenant governor, Alex Lazary, who is the son of the owner of, of the Bucks, And then you've got uh, the state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski. And then you've got um, the, the guy from uh, the, the county executive from um, the, the Appleton area um, who, who's there as well. So Tom Nelson, that's it. So th- these are the polls among people, likely voters in the Democrat primary. First of all, about half of them say they haven't made up their minds. Um, of of those people, let's see who have made up their minds. The race is extremely close. Um, Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, he's got the support of nineteen percent. Um, let's see, Alex Lazary, who's been running all sorts of ads, he has sixteen percent. Um, then let's see. Sarah Godlewski, she's the state treasurer. I've started to see ads for her. She's at 7%, Tom Nelson at 5%. But nobody polling over 20%, and the race, at least right now, if you believe the polls, close between Mandela Barnes and Alex Lazary. Lazary has, of course, pretty much access to unlimited money through the family. Um, Sarah Godlewski, um, has has unlimited money too um, through her husband, large part. So th- there, you're going to start seeing all sorts of other TV ads that are out there as well. Um, but right now, it, it's it's anybody's race. There, there's just no question about it. They also polled in the Republican gubernatorial race. Now the poll was conducted before. Um, uh, businessman, Dodge County businessman, Tim Michaels got in the race. So that just happened this week. And I, I think there's the potential that this this could perhaps be a, a game changer when it, it comes to this. But um, they, they polled, again, before Michaels' presence in the race. And, you know, when you do that, it kind of, it, it, it sort of renders this, this moot. But before the entrance of Michaels in the race, uh, Rebecca Clayfish supported by 32%. Kevin Nicholson by 10%. Tim Rantham, he's the state assembly guy who's running on a pad, on a platform of let's decertify the election. He has 4%. So up until the entrance of Michaels in the race, I think that the takeaway, which I believe is accurate, was that you know Rebecca Clayfish was running away with this. Kevin Nicholson was not, I think, making significant inroads into her support. Now, Tim Michaels... It's, it's a whole different story because, you know, Michaels is clearly going to appeal to the Nicholson voters, but he's also has the potential to, uh, again, woo other voters. And, and even at these numbers, you know, that you had about 50 percent of the primary voters who were undecided. So th- this race is very much up in the air as well, with the wild card being the presence of um, Tim Michaels in 
in the race, especially a situation that just like Godlewski and just like Alex Lazary on the Senate side, you, you've got Tim Michaels, who has already said he's going to self-fund, he, and he's got the wherewithal to do that. And unlike Lazary, who is young and inexperienced and hasn't lived in Wisconsin that long, Tim Michaels has a story that in, in some respects, it, it's, it's a parallel to Herb Cole who, I understand Cole was a Democrat, you know, Michaels is a Republican, but, you know, I mean, Herb Cole, when he first ran for Senate and ended up winning, it was largely self-financed. He ran a lot of TV ads. He had that name recognition. In his case, it was from Cole's grocery stores, the Cole store. And then, you know, in Michael's case, it's from the big construction company. Um, individual success stories about accomplishment, the ability to self-fund, and the fact that, you know, people who have been part of the Wisconsin landscape for for decades, as opposed to somebody who, you know, just moved into the state, you know, a few years back. So I, I think Michaels has a very compelling story. And certainly, if he does go to the media, and if he does, you know, run the ads and get his name recognition out there, I think it becomes a very, very interesting race between him and Rebecca Clayfish. Um, Kevin Nicholson, he wasn't breaking through before, and I will tell you that the presence of Tim Michaels in the race certainly doesn't help that candidacy at all. Okay, let's see um, a couple of the other things. Um, Ron Johnson, favorable by 36% of the voters, unfavorable by 46%. Um, his numbers, his um, unfavor, his approval rating was 33% in February, so it's up slightly. The disapproval was 45%. So Johnson is still underwater, but Ron Johnson has always been a very, very controversial figure. And I think one of the things that's going to happen, and this is what I say about that Senate race, so far it, it's been Ron Johnson and it's been an up or down on him. Once the candidate emerges, whichever one of the four candidates it is, that's when the race really starts, because that's when you start examining where those different candidates are. And as we've talked about before, the, the four candidates who are running are all so far to the left of Joe Biden that, that it's not funny. So that's really going to be the question in Wisconsin, especially in November of 2022, is Wisconsin going to go with the conservative candidate, Ron Johnson, who admittedly might have some baggage, or people farther to the left than Joe Biden? So that will be the discussion. Tony Evers, let's see, his uh, current favorability rating, 47 percent, unfavorable by 42 percent. That is almost identical to where it was in February. So that's, you know, unchanged. So uh, again, he he's... He's not at 50 percent in his approval ratings. I I think the governor's race is anybody's to win or lose either. So those are kind of the numbers. And like I say, it's sort of tough to it's tough to kind of handicap the Republican numbers because they were taken before Tim Michaels was in the race. That kind of changes the whole dynamic. But the bottom line is, you know, in Wisconsin, these are going to be close races in November. And anybody who doesn't think that, I mean, anybody who thinks that Tony Evers is going to win in a landslide or lose in a landslide, I'm here to tell you that's not what's going to happen. Anybody who thinks that Ron Johnson is going to lose in a landslide or win in a landslide, I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. We are going to be, we being the state, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly competitive. And I think these numbers demonstrate that. So, very glad to have you with us. You know, the 
Of course, the news over the last day or two has been this out of Chippewa Falls in the case of this little girl, Lily Peters. And it was an outcome that I think all of us were, were hoping would, would not be the case. This was the little girl who had visited her aunt and was heading home to her parents and never showed up and a massive search. And um, they ended up finding her, her, her dead and lengthy investigation. And apparently the authorities in Chippewa Falls have announced that th- there has been an arrest made. They're not giving the details of this. They're saying that the person arrested is a juvenile. They say the suspect was not a stranger and um, what was known, I think, known to the victim. Here's specifically what the uh, police chief said. First and most importantly, earlier this evening, we arrested a juvenile suspect in this case. The suspect was not a stranger. The suspect was known to the victim. We do not believe there is any danger to the community at this time. Lily Peters 10 was reported missing by her father around 9 p.m. Sunday after she failed to return to her aunt's house on North Grove Street in Chippewa Falls. Police served a search warrant at that residence, um, and, you know, so we don't know the background of this yet, and I understand the authorities have their due diligence to do. I I do think because of the attention this is getting, this would be a situation where at least to the extent that you can release information without – compromising the investigation. This is one where the the sooner you tell the public what you believe happened, I think the better it would be because you have a community that is very much, I mean, on edge about this. And it's just a a horrible sort of story. And it's not just getting attention in Chippewa Falls. It's not just getting attention in Wisconsin. It's it's made national news. The the one comment I would offer, and this is appalling, and we should be, be appalled and scared and outraged by by this whole situation. It's it's a horrible thing with a ten year old girl who you know ends up you know being supposed to be walking home and, and never shows up. The the other comment I would make though is that as outraged and upset as we should deservedly feel about this Lily Peters case, when, if you look at what goes on down here in southeastern Wisconsin in general and in Milwaukee in particular, the number of juveniles. And the number of children that have been murdered this year is, is absolutely staggering. You know, there's the other day there was a story about the 13-year-old girl who was shot and killed. This is the, the epidemics of, epidemic of violence that's going on in Milwaukee is, is just completely and totally out of control. We're going to talk about this again a little bit later on in the show. But I, I guess all this outrage that we appropriately feel for what happened in Chippewa Falls, I, I guess— you know, maybe we, we also need to feel that same degree of outrage and, and not just get used to it when it happens down here in southeastern Wisconsin, because, you know, the, these stories are out there all the time, too. It seems to me like it's not every murder, but it seems to me that, you know, almost every week or so you, you pick up the newspaper, or you turn on the television, or you turn on the radio, or you go on the Internet and check your news sites, and we're seeing another story about a, a child or a juvenile down here in southeastern Wisconsin who's lost their life as a result of, of violence. And I guess I, I just hope we don't lose our ability to be outraged at the unacceptable levels of violence. I hope we don't get to the point where we think, oh, it's it's the homicide of, of a juvenile. Oh, that's too bad. No, we should be uniquely and singularly outraged at all homicides, but particularly this this loss of innocent life when it comes to these small kids. And the outrage we should appropriately feel about what happened to Lily Peters up in Chippewa Falls, we should be feeling about 
every child that loses their life in this state and in this country. And we can't allow ourselves just to be kind of, I don't know, immune to this because it happens so often. It shouldn't have happened to Lily Peters, and it shouldn't happen to any kids down here, period. Here's an interesting piece of trivia. I told you the New Marquette Law School poll has the, the Democratic Senate wannabes. Um, Mandela Barnes, he's at 19%. Alex Lazary is at 16%. Sarah Godlewski is at like 7%. Well, here's the interesting thing. Barnes hasn't spent a dime on television advertising because I don't think he's got much money. Um, Lazary, who, because of family ties, has all the money you could possibly want, he spent $4.4 million on ads going back to last fall through the present time. Sarah Godlewski, she spent more than a million dollars on advertising since going on the air last month. So $4.4 million for Lazary, and he's polling at 16%. Um, a million for Godlewski, and she's polling at 7%. Um, I, I don't know how much money is going to be spent, but if you're looking at bang for the buck, at least so far that advertising doesn't seem to be breaking through. But my guess is, in the case of Lazary for sure, if he spent $4.4 million now, the sky's going to be the limit. But between now and early August when you got the primary, wouldn't be surprised to see him dump another $15 million of family money into this race. Is it going to make a difference? Don't know, because even though he hasn't spent a dime yet, um, at least on advertising, Mandela Barnes is still maintaining a lead. So got all those different dynamics that are out there. And again, the the ability to self-finance, the ability to spend an unlimited amount of money it is an incredible advantage when you are a candidate. And that's the advantage that Alex Lazary has. That's the advantage that Sarah Godlewski has. It is the advantage that Tim Michaels has because he's already said, you know, he, he's getting late. He's getting into the Republican primary late, but he's not constrained by having to go and, you know, sit on the phone and, and call people up and beg them for $50 or $100 or whatever. It is very, very freeing if you're in a financial situation, either because your family has money or your husband has money or you've accumulated a lot of wealth over your working years. It's a very, very interesting situation when you can afford to self-finance. And we've got a couple high-profile candidates on both sides of the aisle who are exactly in that situation. Will money make a difference at the end? Well, time will tell. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, let's let's start off with a premise that I think almost nobody can disagree with. The war in Ukraine is not going as Russia anticipated. When Russia invaded Ukraine for a variety of reasons— I think they thought, number one, that their military was going to just be able to walk through the country and they would be able to essentially take over the country in a day or two. Did not happen. Secondly, Russia did not believe that they were going to meet the resistance from Ukraine that it did. Third, Russia viewed, thought that at least the, the, the hope was among Russia was that we're going to be viewed as, as liberators. Ukrainian people are going to embrace us. Did not happen. All those things have come to pass. In addition, I think Vladimir Putin and Russia thought that the West was not going to unite against them. I mean, when when he took over, when he moved into Crimea um, years ago, the, the the West 
essentially did nothing to stop him from doing that. And so I think he was emboldened by that to do all this. Well, that hasn't worked out. I mean, they haven't been able to take over their objectives. Um, They've been beaten back. The Russian military has not performed as expected. And interestingly enough, by invading Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has done something that I didn't think anybody would be able to do, and that is he has united the West. You've got Germany. You've got Italy. You've got Great Britain. You've got France. Everybody on the same page. You've got places like Poland and Finland that are now actively investigating whether they can become parts of of NATO or not, something that I don't think was on the table before, but now... um, not Poland, but Finland and Sweden, actively trying to investigate whether they could become parts of of, of NATO or not. Poland's already in NATO. But you, you've got all this stuff that, that's going on there. And what's happened as a result of this is that the Russians are getting frustrated with this. The war has not going on, gone on as expected. And you've got the economic sanctions that are pretty much crippling the average Russian. Now, it takes time for that to work, but it, it's having an effect. So what you're seeing in the face of these various defeats, what you're seeing is Russia in general, and Putin in particular, starting to now lash out. The new development today was the fact that uh, Russia announced that they would no longer start supplying gas to Poland and Bulgaria because Poland and Bulgaria refused to pay them for the gas in rubles. Um, the contracts call for it to be paid in dollars or in euros. They say they want rubles to try to help, I think, prop up the economy. And, and that's just – that's a non-starter. So now Poland and Bulgaria are going to have to figure out you know, where they're going to get the, the, the gas from. Um, so far, Russia hasn't done that with Germany because, well, Germany is its major customer. And if you decide to say, okay, we're not going to continue to sell stuff to Germany, what ends up happening is then you pretty much, where is your money going to come from? I mean, given the fact that the Russian economy is is basically a large gas station. So they haven't done that with Russia yet, with uh, Germany yet. They haven't done it with Italy yet, but they are doing it with smaller customers like Poland and Bulgaria. So they're, they're trying to say, okay, look, as long as NATO... And as long as the West is continuing to provide arms to Ukraine, well, then we're, we're going to retaliate. And if you want our oil, you, you better stop doing this. The other thing that's happening is that the N-word is being thrown around. And by N, I mean nuclear. Um, Vladimir Putin, I'm looking at a story in one of Britain's papers, so you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But um, they're quoting Putin as saying that um, he will use nuclear weapons against the West if anyone interferes in Ukraine. He said the response will be lightning fast. If someone intends to interfere in what is going on from the outside, they must know that constitutes an unacceptable strategic threat to Russia. They must know that our response to counterstrikes will be lightning. We have all the weapons we need for this. No one else can brag about these weapons, and we won't brag about them. So in other words, that... That concept, the, all right, we might use our nuclear weapons, we might lash out because we view the fact that the phrase that they're using is it's like a proxy war, like by supplying arms to the Ukrainians, what the West is essentially doing is, you know, conducting a war with Russia, but without conducting the war because they don't actually have troops on the ground. So the bottom line is what Putin believes is the West should just back off and let him steamroller Ukraine and let him occupy that and return it to its historical place as 
I don't know, a portion of the Russian Empire. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You've got in Putin a guy who I think is increasingly desperate and is starting to sound increasingly desperate. This has not worked out as he had expected. Russia, I believe, is losing the war. Now, I say losing the war because they're not accomplishing their objectives. The The human carnage that's been created in, in Ukraine is, is unbelievable. And I'm not just talking about the thousands and thousands of thousands of civilian deaths and the mass graves and things like that. I, I'm talking also about the destruction of the Ukrainian economy, the fact that you've got four or five million people so far and counting who've already been displaced and have become refugees. So the human cost of this has been incredible. But Russia has not accomplished its objectives, and it doesn't appear that it's going to accomplish its objectives anytime soon. So you have a, a leader who's lashing out in an increasing morally more, I, I think, desperate fashion, and he's threatening, hey, I might use nuclear weapons here. I might you know, cut off all the gas supplies. I might do everything I possibly can if you don't stop. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So should we give in? Should, should we stop? Should we say, look, the problem is you've got a, a crazy, evil despot who's bent on domination in his region, and the problem is he's also got a nuclear arsenal. So should we just give in to the bully and say, gee, well, we're afraid that he might lash out with us if we continue to provide arms to Ukraine? Should we give in to that? And if we do give in to that, where does it leave us? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, Russia is is losing the war in Ukraine, and they are ramping up the the, the rhetoric and, and their actions. They've already cut off Poland and uh, Bulgaria from from gas shipments because they refuse to pay in in rubles. Um, okay, that that that's fine. They're in many respects, yes, they hurt Poland and Bulgaria, but they also hurt themselves. So far, they haven't done it to Germany because if they do, they pretty much guarantee that the country is going to get like no income coming in. But also, Putin is now saying, "Hey, look, you know, we we consider this to be a proxy war, and just so you understand, you might push us to a point where we decide that we're going to use our nuclear weapons, presumably in a first strike sort of situation." So, do we say, "Oh, well, Mr. Putin, we're we're so we're so sorry that we have offended you. Here, continue to you know commit genocide against the Ukraine people. Here, take over this country. Do whatever you want. We're going to stay out of it because, gee, we're afraid of your threat." Or do we continue doing what we're doing? 855-616-1620. Don in Franklin. Don, you're first. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of the devil's advocate here. I think that, uh, you know, I think what's been going on over there has been a developing, you could argue, since, you know, the European empires, you know, going all the way back. But certainly since, you know, the fallout of the Soviet Union and all that, I think it's a lot more complicated than the average American might understand. You know, there's been separatists fighting in the East for decades, you know, against Ukrainians. It's been a fight over there. And the only thing I worry about, I'm not so much worried about Putin's threats as I am just a further developing conflict to where the more we supply, the more we are kind of proxy involved. I think you're just raising the chances that we're going to end up getting on the ground involved. And I think for a conflict like that, with another world power just isn't something that, you know, really is worth it. Not to leave Ukraine in the lurch, but, you know, it, it's one of those 
Well, what, know, well, well, what do you what, what do you Ameri- do? Yeah. I mean, you're what do you do? You're you're NATO, and by the way, I agree with you. Ground troops. That's one of the reasons why I was never in favor of uh, de- declaring like the, the the thing with the air where we would have to enforce the no fly zone and things like that, because I, I think that would have led to NATO planes getting into shootouts with Russian planes and things like that. So I, I agree with you on the no ground troops, but Putin is essentially saying stop providing weapons to Ukraine. Should they do that? It's it's hard because, I mean, especially, you know, I'm, I'm a younger guy, so I'm you know coming up in this new age of media. I mean, a few years ago when our administration here was different, there was a totally different agenda against Ukraine to where, you know, they, it, the, paint, the picture was painted to where they are a corrupt nation, you know, that they're mm-hmm. dealing with our previous administration. These guys are no good. And now all of a sudden they're a beacon of light. It's just a little bit confusing as far as are they or are they not? Um, I, I mean, you want to help them out, but, you know, again, the world powers tend to have these, what I would consider influence wars, you know, all over the place. Um, you know, we've had our own in our you know past history. So, okay, um, so let me take you back to my situation. question, Don. So, so what do you do? I mean, you're, yeah. do, do you, do you give in to the demand and do you say, okay, we're going to, we're going to stop supplying Ukraine and we're going to essentially let Russia take it over and continue to kill people that it wants? Or do we continue to say, okay, we believe Russia is evil and the Ukrainians are resisting them and we're going to help them. Okay. So what, those are really the two choices. Yeah. I mean, so I guess if, if feet to the fire, I would say that we get out entirely. It's a conflict that isn't really, in our sphere of influence as much. And also I think you're just, that's risking getting deeper involved to where, you know, you'll be sending boys from Iowa and Minnesota to go over to Ukraine. I oh. think I, I just get very nervous about getting involved on the ground. Okay. Well, thanks thanks for the call. We, okay, Don, I got it. I mean, I, pre, I look, I, 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 nobody right now is talking about, you know, sending boys from Iowa to get involved on, on the ground. And I think I agree with you, and Joe Biden agrees with you, and most Republicans in the Congress agree with you that this is not a, a land war. But I guess the fundamental question, though, is what, what do we do right now where you have an aggressor nation, Russia, which is trying to take over uh, one of its neighboring countries and thereby unsettle that entire region? And that country is fighting back. Do we let them be rolled over or or not? And I guess my answer would be, well, to to pull out of Ukraine now, to simply abandon them. Man, you want to talk about like NATO and U.S. influence when we've said we would support them to to now suddenly say, okay, well, we're afraid that Vladimir Putin is threatening us with nuclear weapons. So now we're going to back off. Um, Well, okay, what what does that say? So the next time when Vladimir Putin wants to take over Bulgaria or he wants to take over portions of Poland or whatever he wants to do, that all he has to do is say, okay, I've tried this militarily. It did not work. I can threaten to uh, go nuclear using the N-word. And then I'm in a situation where you're you're going to give in. I mean, is that how we're going to give in to tyrants? If you've got the, the crazy guy in North Korea who says, okay, I've got these nuclear weapons. I'm ready to use them and I won't want you to let me take over South Korea. Do, do, we, do we do that? I mean, how do you respond to these types of threats? 855-616-1620. Back with more in just a moment. Steve in Delafield. Steve, good afternoon. Yes, uh, the U.N. has got to do something about this situation in Ukraine and Russia. And I know it's been said because Russia sits on the Security Council, mm-hmm. the U.N. can't do anything. 
there, there's got to be a way for the United Nations body and body general in total to overrule a single country. This is why the U.N. was created, to and, prevent this kind of stuff from happening, and, and, and to, the U.N. is doing nothing. Yeah, to your point, Steve, if the U.N., in a situation like this, where you have one of the member countries that is committing this incredible act of aggression and all these atrocities and killing the civilians and creating this entire crisis with the refugees, if the U.N. can't do anything to stop it, it really does kind of tell you that the U.N., that U.N. charter is not worth the paper it's printed on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the U.N., the West is nicely united in NATO. That's great. that's That's a treaty organization. Well, the United Nations, again, is the world created to prevent exactly this kind of stuff from happening, and they're doing nothing. Why can't all the other countries get the United Nations to do something, put the no-fly zone over over Ukraine, and enforce it and get Russia yeah. back into their, within their own borders? This I, is the responsibility of the United Nations, which is doing nothing. No, see, I, 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 I believe me. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm reading a book now about. Uh, I said this the other day. About it's about. It's a new book that came out about Harry Truman, and it talks about all the different kind of crises that he faced and stuff. But, but some, you know, after he took over when President Roosevelt died, you know, right before the end of World War II, and you know, one of the things it's, it's the formation of the UN and how controversial that was and how it all came together. And it's one of these things where you get this idea it's these lofty goals okay here, here's what we're going to do you know we're we're going to have this organization that's going to you know make this a a saner and a safer sort of world and then you have a situation where one of the member countries decides to essentially go rogue commit these atrocities attack another member country and you're in a situation where you're the UN sits there and it, and it twiddles its thumbs because well, Russia does, like you were saying, you know, sit on the Security Council, so it has a veto of, of actions, and there's nothing you can end up doing. This, to me, demonstrates completely and totally how useless the United Nations is if if you cannot condemn this. Now, let's be honest, too. Part of the problem is, you know, Russia right now is aligned with the, the real a real rogues gallery of, of countries. Um, you've, you've got, you know, North Korea— and Syria, you know, those are the type of countries that are out there, you know, supporting and trying to keep hands off Russia. You've got other countries that are trying to not get involved and stay neutral because they don't want to upset Russia or they want to make sure they continue to get Russian oil or things of the like. So if, if nothing else, and I guess that's one of the frustrations that, that I have, do in a perfect world, should the United Nations have a role in, in, in what goes on in the world? And, and the answer is, yeah, in a perfect world it does. But this is the situation that demonstrates how actively impotent the United Nations is when it comes to dealing with these sort of, of crises that, that's out there where you just stand by and turn a blind eye to this type of aggression. And by the way, don't expect anything to happen from the United Nations. They're, they're pretty much paralyzed, which does make you wonder, why do we have a quote-unquote United Nations, if they can't stand up to the face of this aggression. I guess bottom line of this is, I I think, I don't know where this ends. And the the worse it gets for Russia, the more the threats are going to be there, but the more behind the scenes, I I think they've got to be trying to look for some sort of exit ramp to to get out of this mess that they have created, um, as opposed to just kind of doubling down and making it worse. I do go back, though, again, to something that Lindsey Graham said, at the start of all this, that had a lot of people wringing their hands. It was when he came out and said, you know, the world would really be a better place if Putin was gone. 
Well, um, I, I, as I've said before in this program, for, for all the people who were clutching their pearls and wringing their hands about that, is it because he said it or is he because he said it out loud? And the truth is, you know, who could really seriously argue that the world wouldn't be a better place if Vladimir Putin was not in power? The countdown to the draft is on, and we're doing it big with a draft night megacast. April 28th, which is tomorrow from 7 to 11 p.m., join Gabe Neitzel, Greg Matzik, Brian D., and Jason Wilde as they break down all things draft during round one. Plus, they'll be joined by Tausch, Chewy, and other football voices throughout the show. The Draft Night Megacast. It's April 28th from 7 to 11 p.m. right here on 620 WTMJ. You know, it, it's funny. The um, There's a lot of talk about Elon Musk buying Twitter, $44 billion. Must be nice to have that money. Kind of like the Alex Lazary campaign. Must be nice to be able to spend, you know, millions of dollars of advertising, you know, on your, your Senate race. In, but that, that, that's all well and good. So anyhow, people are talking about, well, if Elon Musk takes over Twitter, that, that's going to be it. There's a really interesting post uh, uh, article in the Washington Post today. Quitting Twitter is the new moving to Canada. So you've, you've got all these people, particularly on the left side of the political spectrum, who are all upset with the prospect that Elon Musk is going to all own Twitter. And Elon Musk has already – now, how this actually, whether this actually happens or not, who knows. But Elon Musk has said, yeah, I, I kind of come down on the side of free speech, and I don't want to be the free speech police. And Twitter, which has a habit of – taking people off the um, off its its platform in part because they, they don't like some of the things they say politically. I mean, most notably, you know, Donald Trump, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, Donald Trump banned from, from Twitter. So the speculation is that, that this is going to be opened up and people like Trump will be back. And you have all these people, particularly on the left, who are clutching their pearls and wringing their hands about how terrible this is. And, and we're, we're going to be off. We're going to be off of Twitter. Well, here's what the article in the Post says. Quitting Twitter is like the new moving to Canada, a plan by the richest man in the world to blow some spare change on a perennially troubled social media platform has prompted plenty of users to claim they're logging out for good. Yet their threats not only do little to intimidate a billionaire chief executive intent on a colonizing space, they also ring familiarly empty. The intention to pack up and leave a place to protest its leadership has become almost a cliche. If Barack Obama wins, Republicans said in 28, we're marching north. If Donald Trump wins, Democrats echoed in 2016 across the border, we go. Few actually acted on these indignant commitments. Well, why? Moving is hard. Relocating across the street requires some heavy lifting. Living somewhere truly new involves as much nostalgia for the old stomping grounds as excitement at exploring untrodden territory. Yeah, and then it goes on, but you get the point. Remember Barbara Streisand? I think this goes back Gosh, like the Barbara Streisand's of the world, doesn't that go back to like 2004 when President Bush was running for re-election? Oh, if Bush wins, I'm heading for Canada. Remember how often you heard that? And last time I checked, pretty much, you know, a lot of the Hollywood elite that said they were heading to Canada, they're, they're still living in Malibu or places like that. So whenever you hear this, oh, we're done with, we're done with Twitter if Elon Musk takes over, and I, I really don't. I really don't care about this one way or the other. But for everybody who says, we're done with this, we're gone, we're history, again, just remember all those people who said that they were heading to Canada and are still here as well. Okay, we've been talking a lot about 
the, the, the unacceptable levels of violence in, in Milwaukee. And lots of people have different suggestions and ideas as to what to do. There is, I think you can make an argument that if there was an agency that was just by any objective standard failing in its mission, that agency would be the Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention. Did you know that there's a Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention? Well, there is. It was launched 14 years ago as a way for the city to cut down on shootings and save lives. Its annual budget is $3.7 million. But that's before the you know American Rescue Rescue Plan Act funds came into play. So the Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention has been getting $8.4 million from the state and another $3 million from the city's allocation over five years. All right, $8.4 million from the state and another $3 million from the city's allocation. On top of that, um, so what you're going to be looking at is more than $11 million in federal COVID relief funds going to the Office of Violence Prevention. Now, I have no problem with spending money to try to prevent violence, right? I mean, I think that that's a noble thing. At the same time, how can you look at what is going on in the city of Milwaukee? How can you look at 71 or 72 homicides? How can you look at a couple hundred shootings? How can you look at the the carjackings? And we're not even talking about the car thefts and things like that. How can you look at the out-of-control and escalating rate of violence and say that whatever it is that this agency is doing is coming close to accomplishing things? Now, I understand it's tough to prove a negative. And so the people associated with this say, well, it, it would be even worse if it wasn't for us, to which I ask rhetorically, how in the world could it be worse? I mean, seriously. So at some point in time, when you have these different programs that sound good and have noble purposes and all, but aren't working, do you continue to fund them, throw enormous amounts of money at them, like $11 million, or maybe take a step back and recognize maybe this isn't the way to spend this money, because maybe this stuff that sounds good and it sounds PC, yes, we want to do all these community outreach types of things, okay, that's all well and good, and maybe it's something that's worthwhile when you're in peacetime. But when you're in wartime, and we are in a war when it comes to violent crime, when you're in wartime, maybe what you need to do is say, okay, this $11 million that we're giving to this Office of Violence Prevention that's not doing a very good job of preventing violence, maybe we should spend it in other areas. Well, what other areas would you spend it on, Jeff? Well, okay, I'd start with more cops on the street as a starting point. I'd start with more resources for those cops on the street. I guess I'd start with more resources for the courts, I I guess, on top of that, to clear up the backlogs and things like that. But this idea that we've got these, these groups and these organizations that have these fancy names and sound really, really good, and they look great when it's, oh, well, we're going to give $11 million to the Office of Violence Prevention. But then you look at the numbers and you realize, well, if the goal is to reduce violence, they're doing a really crummy job of it. 
Right. Can you continue funding these places? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Waterstone Bank and WTMJ's Steve Scafidi are once again partnering to recognize the heroes in our community. Police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others help every day to protect our families. They're the first on the scene when critical accidents and unfortunate events occur. Do you know a first responder who deserves recognition for their duties? Well, if so, head to our website, WTMJ.com, and make your nomination now. And please hurry. The nomination period ends May 13th. It's Waterstone Bank's salute to service. You find it on News Radio WTMJ. I, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of this particular organization, but for the last 14 years, Milwaukee has have, had the euphemistically named Office of Violence Prevention. All right, the Office of Violence Prevention gets millions of dollars, including it's in line for like 11 million bucks from state and federal COVID relief packages. Now, if you haven't noticed... All right, violence is not being prevented in Milwaukee. As a matter of fact, violence is increasing at an exponential type of rate. And nobody seems to know what this particular organization is doing or how they can quantify whether they've had any success or not. Now, I understand it's difficult to prove a negative. By that, I mean you can say, well, yes, we we understand that there's 70-plus homicides and things are out of control. We get all that. But, you know, it would have been even worse if, if we weren't here. To which you say, why? I mean, how how do you, you know, know that? How, how, where does this come from? So today's TMJ4 went out and they interviewed the lady who's been the director of this for, you know, the, the last year or so. And they, they've got eight employees. Um, when asked if they believe, this is, you go to the director and you ask, do you believe you're preventing violence given the current crime rates? Well, of course, what, what are you supposed to say? What do you think they're going to say? But she says, absolutely, violence is being prevented. Those are the stories that are not reported. And so I hold the media as responsible as community members who need to step up. So it's the media's fault because we're doing all this, this great stuff. Humana, humana, humana. They say they use a public health approach to prevent violence. Heavy sigh. They're in neighborhoods that they see the most shootings in the cities. In addition, youth and young adult programming that promotes safe ways to resolve conflicts. How's that working out? Don't hear too many of those situations. They say, this is the director, the targeted approach includes proactive outreach to residents, neighbors, and business partners in crime-ridden areas. It also means having a partner respond to mediate conflicts in real time to stop shootings before they occur or even afterwards to prevent retaliation. Didn't we have some of the community activists on our news talking about how, well, part of the reason that the cops can't do their job is because people are afraid of retaliation, so the witnesses adopt this kind of no-snitch philosophy. Look, here's the bottom line. You've got an epidemic that's going on here. And I understand this stuff sounds really nice and it's got that touchy-feely PC sort of thing. Oh, we're going to reach out and do this. But the point of this is it's not working. Or at least I would argue that it's not the best way to spend money right now. Right now, you've got that 
tidal wave. I mean, you, you've you got that tidal wave that's coming towards the island, right? Or maybe it's already here. Well, I mean, you can say, well, okay, you know, what we need to do is we need to have something that goes out and studies like oceanic currents or things like that. Well, okay, we're past that point. Right now, that tidal wave is landing on the cities. And what you need to do is you need those people out there with the sandbags that are <laughs> making sure that the buildings don't flood, right? That's what you've got to do. So if if in quieter times, this is one of these sort of nice, let's sing kumbaya sort of programs. Okay, I'm cool with that. But this is not right now. And how you can continue funneling millions and millions of dollars into an organization when you have on a daily basis shootings that are out of control, when you have homicides, when you have carjackings, when you have all this going on— the, the triage of this is to say, look, this might be nice when it's quiet, but what we need to do is we need to figure out really active ways to stop this, stop this problem right now. And let's start with more cops on the street. Let's start with you know more courts to get people through the, these things sooner. Let's start with more prisons if that's what it takes. Let's start with a different approach, like let's fund juvenile boot camps and stuff so we don't take these young juvenile delinquents and just simply send them back out on the streets to become more and more hardened criminals. But, you know, I mean, $11 million last time I checked was a lot of money, and you're not getting any bang for the buck at all. Chris in West Dallas. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I believe that the violence prevention thing is just, like you said, a political band-aid to make it sound like they're doing something. I can't tell you. I, I live in the city as well. I can't tell you how many times you have a makeshift memorial for somebody that's got murdered. Two, three days later, everything is back to what it is. I think what needs to be done is the crime has increased greatly but the ability to hold people that violate the law there's no consequences for carjackings uh mm-hmm. etc murders uh you know violent crimes car thefts I no think, consequences you know, at all for stealing a car i mean steal you you steal a car nothing. you're back out on the street two hours later to steal another car it, it's disgusting yep you're right exactly so i think you know politicians they don't they don't think it's a proper thing, but we got this big partial of land in the Northridge area that hasn't been used in God knows how long. They need to build a facility to, you know, for detention and as as you say, rehabilitation to try to show some of the young men and women when they violate the law, they they got they got to be held. They don't have a place to hold them. They don't have a place to process them because the crime has increased more than the system is able to process. So it's basically you get a slap on the wrist and they put you back out on the street, you know, and then it it repeats itself over and over again. Until until they do something like that, uh, making a detention facility that's able to hold X amount of people to keep them off of the street after they violate the law, it's going to continue and we're going to keep having the same speeches, oh, let's you know, violence prevention, gun control, which is a joke, because if you want to get a gun, you don't, you know, they can get a gun anywhere. They don't need to go through the law to get to get a gun. Yeah. A criminal is a criminal. So I, I think that it's just a dog and pony show to continue to get what X amount of money 
Have you checked any of the salaries of some of the people that are that are supposed to be enforcing this? I bet you those are pretty good too. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. I appreciate. It. I, matter of fact, that's I was just trying to pull that up because some of one of our texters said, you know, what's and and I, I look, I don't mean I don't mean to pick on the people that are in this agency right now, other than to say that what they're doing clearly doesn't work or isn't working right now. And and it's it's not to say that at some point in time in the future, it, it might work, all right? But right now, singing Kumbaya is not solving the problems. And to continue right now with these programs and throwing millions and millions of dollars, think about how many cops you could put on the streets in high crime areas, a police presence. Think about how many cops you could put on the street for $11 million. I mean, seriously, as, as opposed to this well, you know, we, 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 we want to have this healing approach. And I'm not against healing, but, but maybe if, you, if we restructured how we approach things, maybe you wouldn't need the, the healing. Maybe you wouldn't need to go out and, and spend all this time comforting victims if you could stop them from becoming victims in the first place by, okay, okay let's, let's look at the people that are perpetrating this. Let, let's have this police presence and things like that are, that are out there. And by the way, I, I agree with you. You need a juvenile detention facility. I don't know. I don't know that Northridge is the best place for it, but you certainly need one here because th- this is it. When my idea is whether it's boot camps or whatever, you, you need to start saying we're going to have a zero to- tolerance policy for people who are committing small acts, and then we're going to really have a zero tolerance policy for people who are committing larger acts. But again, you, you can't you can't have this conversation because you've got all the PC folks who are going to be just appalled. Well, he, he wants to get rid of the Office of Violence Prevention. Oh no, I, I I want I want the Office of Violence Prevention to be required to quantify what it does to earn its existence. And I want to have a conversation about whether that $11 million, given where we are in today's day and age, whether that could be better spent on something else that really might solve and start to uh, prevent violence. Is that unreasonable? I I won't hold my breath waiting to hear from city officials. A lot of callers on the text line praising our last caller. Wow, give that man a prize. He absolutely nailed it. Jeff, great commentary from somebody who actually lives in the city and clearly wants a better quality of life for the city. See, there's lots of people like our last caller that are out there. Unfortunately, their voices aren't heard by, I I think, the politically correct, the perpetually offended, and the folks that are just so invested in continuing to maintain a system that doesn't work. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Mike Spaulding, I I would never presume to tell you how to write your newscasts or your weather forecasts, but I I do want to to suggest a rule, at least for during my program, and that is that the phrase wintry mix, I don't want to hear it in a weather (laughs) forecast in the last week in April. Should I say... I don't care what you say, but not wintry mix. Below freezing precipitations expected or something like that? Something like that. I don't want to hear the phrase wintry mix. It's it's sort of like, you know, some of those different terms that we've heard, you know, over over the years that you just say, "I, I I don't want to hear wintry mix at the end of April. Hey, I do want to comment on um, the, your report. The the person who they believe committed the murder of Lily Peters, the mm-hmm. little 10-year-old girl, he apparently appeared in, in court today, and it's a 14-year-old boy? Yes, correct. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't... I, I was... I was just checking something else out while we were doing it. I mean, the, he appeared in court. I'm, I'm looking at a story from WSA, 
W. And the um, they're not identifying him because he's a juvenile at this point in time, only by his initials. But um, I just hope we never lose our, our ability to be appalled by this. This is a 14-year-old. He's charged with first-degree intentional homicide, according to the story I'm looking at. Prosecutors said in court that the girl was strangled. Mm-hmm. So that's it. He's also charged with sexual assault and sexual assault of a child. So we have... No details on this, but this is this 14-year-old who at least allegedly sexually assaulted and strangled this this 10-year-old girl. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible terrible story, and uh, it, it's only gotten worse the more uh, that we've learned. And for what it's worth, the uh, the criminal complaint is going to stay sealed for you. You'd know better than I the whole entire process of it, but it's going to stay sealed uh, for quite a while. So chances are we won't find out. Um, a lot more initially, but yeah, that's the, the basis. Right. You, I mean, right now, the, the 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 thing that's going there's there's. I mean, this is just so appalling. But as a matter of law, Wisconsin law requires that first degree homicide charges initially be brought in adult court if the accused is age ten or older. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's here. Um, the the case could eventually be transferred to juvenile court. Now, I, I my guess is. That in a case like this, with a 14-year-old who's accused of strangling a 10-year-old and sexually assaulting that 10-year-old, my guess is that that the prosecutors are going to do everything they possibly can to keep this in adult court. And if that's the case, then it becomes treated just like any other case, and the names become public and all the details. If it's treated in juvenile court, it's different. But it's it, it's difficult to see how they couldn't push to have something like this treated in adult court, you would think, under the circumstances. And the district attorney in Chippewa Falls was asked that. He he gave some public comments right after the court hearing was held today, and he was asked if it's going to stay in adult court or not, and he said it was, you know, kind of like what you said, Jeff, too early to tell at this point. We may learn more, though, next week there is a another preliminary hearing set, so uh, I do expect we'll learn a little bit more details at that time. Right. And the 14-year-old is in custody on a $1 million cash bond, which means he's yeah. not going anywhere. And that's exactly what the prosecutors asked for. His his defense team asked, I think it was $10,000. Sorry, I just I saw it and ran out. I believe it was $10,000. <laughs> and the judge in those comments that I played said, this was very serious accusations and, and there is a threat to the public. So we're going to go ahead and set that at the $1 million. Yeah, that... that and. You'd, you'd like to think that that's not unique to Chippewa Falls. You'd like to think if you have a 14-year-old who's accused of sexually assaulting and strangling a 10-year-old, that that a $10,000 bond would not exactly be appropriate. But we'll continue to focus on that. But that's And again, of course, nobody knows the, the relationship between the 14-year-old and the victim or things like that, and that'll all come out in due time. But um, just, just, you know, when, when you heard this girl was missing, the hope was— it would be okay, but unfortunately, it did not turn out well. Um, but in any event, they have the perpetrator in custody right now, and we'll know more. But that's that's what we know thus far. All right, let us go where angels fear to tread. I I had made a comment on the air the the other day, and for it was it wasn't even related to this particular topic, but we we ended up talking. Oh, I know what we were talking about. We were talking about um, the fact that there's no age limits on on running for elected office, and now you've got the situation where Diane Diane Feinstein, the the liberal senator from California, you have a lot of people in her own party 
who believe she's suffering from dementia, that she's just not with it. And they're, they're wrestling with this, you know, how do we remove her? Because she doesn't appear to be willing to step down. And th- this isn't the other side. This isn't Republicans. These, this, <laughs> this is a story that I think was run by the, the local San Francisco paper. This is all sorts of Democrats who are close to her, and they're, they're troubled. And we use that as a springboard on a conversation about how, you, you know, should there be an upper age limit on running for office? And, and my answer is, yes, I, I think that there there should be. And somehow I, I made an aside, or one of the texters made an aside about, we were likening it to the fact that in Wisconsin, there there's no age limit on driving an automobile. In, in other words, you can, unless unless your doctor dimes you out and reports you to the DMV saying that, you know, they don't think that you're able to drive or you're involved in an automobile accident or something of, of the like, there's, there's no way of taking people's driver's licenses. And in Wisconsin, you can go, as we all know, eight years without having a hearing test or a vision test or anything. I mean, when you go in to renew your license at the DMV, you go in there, they have you look in that little thing, you see the, they ask, you know, which side do you see the lights, you know, all that type of stuff. And if you pass, so let's say you pass today, you're not going to have to go in for another check for eight years, unless, again, your doctor files a notice saying he doesn't think that you're able to drive, or alternatively, unless you're involved in some sort of accident or something like that, because your license comes up for renewal in four years, and that first four years, you don't have to you don't have to go into the DMV. All you have to do is just write off that check. So in theory, let us say you are 80 years old, and you go in and you pass that, that little test that they give you at the DMV, you're not going to have to go back till you're 88. And a lot can happen between 80 and 88. I mean, 76 and 84, you know, um, 85 and 93. You, you get the idea. And, you know, one of the things that I, I hear a lot about is this frustration that people have with with this system. And I particularly hear it from people in their 40s and 50s who are dealing with aging parents who know that dad or mom shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car. They, they know that. But they're, they're paralyzed. They can't do anything because dad or mom don't want to give up the car keys, and they don't want to give up their driver's license because it's, it's the sense of freedom that, that you have. But yet, you know, the, the kids, and I'm saying kids, I'm talking about people in their 40s and 50s, maybe even 60s, live in fear that that phone is going to ring and it's going to be the police saying, okay, well, you know, your, your dad, your mom, your uncle, whatever, your grandfather took out the car and just was driving past the school and lost control of the car and hit and killed somebody or whatever. It, it's that fear that they, they have. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I was thinking about that text I got, and I was thinking about a, a story that appeared in the Washington Post just the other day, and the headline is, When Should Older Adults Stop Driving? It, it depends. And the headline is, Many drivers retain their skills later into life, but vision impairments, diminishing reaction, speed, pose various risks. All right. I think in Wisconsin, and you want to talk about something that would have to take a real political act of, of courage. I think in Wisconsin, I don't think there should be an upper age limit on, on people driving 
because I can see that you might have somebody who's 85 years old who is a better driver than somebody who's 40 years old. I, I can see that and I understand it. But the reality is, as we get older, our reflexes slow down. Sometimes we make noise when we stand up and sit down with the joints. Your eyesight deteriorates. Your hearing deteriorates. Your reflexes deteriorate. That is the reality of aging. And I guess I firmly believe, I would never argue that there should be an age limit that you couldn't drive a car. I do think and I feel strongly that after a certain age, and I don't know what that age is, and I'm closer to that age than I am to 16. I don't know what that age is. I don't know if it's 72 or 75 or, or whatever, but I do think there needs to be more than just every eight years come on in and see if you can look into this into a box. I think maybe it, I think there needs to be more road testing maybe some form of cognitive testing as people get older to make sure that they're not a not a hazard. And I understand that this would upset maybe people in that age bracket that they have to go in and go through this. But I think it would be a relief to so many children and grandchildren who can't figure out a way to get the car keys out of mom's hands or the car keys out of dad's hands or the car keys out of grandma or grandpa's hands, even though they know that there's no way in God's green earth they should be driving and they wouldn't drive with them. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it unreasonable to say beyond a certain age, and we can argue what that age is, that you can't just renew your license for, for eight years without going in. Maybe every two years you got to go in and you got to take a road test, something more than we do now. Is that unreasonable? 855-616-1620. We discuss. <laughs> 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Hey, Jeff, I know professional truck drivers in their late 70s that are still driving. However, they are required to take a DOT physical every 12 to 24 months to retain their commercial driver's license, or CDL. I believe the same practice could be applied to people with your normal license as well. Thanks. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm not arguing that there should be this mandatory, all right, beyond a certain age, you can't drive a car, because I, I people age differently. There's no question about it. But I I do think that there needs to be more checks in place. And and right now what happens is if 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 there's a complaint, if if your doctor, for example, I'm using the phrase dimes you out, if your doctor notifies the state that they think that there's concerns or something, well, it can trigger certain things and then they do these investigations. But otherwise, unless you have an accident and even you have an accident, unless there's some cause to question, you know, whether or not you're competent to drive, you're, you're pretty much good to go. And I guess I'm just saying I think we need more than that as a matter of routine and just apply it across the board. Figure out what that age is. And I'm not smart enough to know whether it's 75 or, or 80 or wherever. And again, just I mean, I'm getting a couple of these hostile texts, as you might expect. I, I'm not saying take away everybody's driver's license, but if if you— if you can't drive, you know, if you can't see or you can't hear or your reflexes are slowed or whatever, I mean, you don't want to be on the road. Your kids don't want you to be on the road, etc. Okay, well, now somebody's saying, well, you know, it's not the older people that are causing problems. You know, it's all these young people that are stealing cars and running through red lights and stuff like that, to which I would say, yes, that is a problem as well. I, I, I got it. But that doesn't mean 
that, you know, we should automatically just turn our back on licensing things, does it? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Sue. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi. My dad was 76 years old and was documented with very bad um, retention of thought and a near Alzheimer's, they were saying. And with that, the doctor would not say take away the license. I went to him. I said, Dad doesn't know. Stop or start. He goes through the school system and in the, in the walkway where the kids are crossing the road. He tries to hit them because they're in his road. He, the mm. doctor would still not take away the license. When I went to the motor vehicle department with Wisconsin, I said the same thing. And they said, your dad has dementia, but we're going to make him do a test. My dad brought the, the cheat notes along, and he passed the, the written test. Again, they wouldn't take his license until I said, I want your badge. I'm going to hold you responsible if he hurts anybody. Then they took his license away. It was a horrible thing to go through, and I, as a daughter, ended up being hated for my father because I did it so I did yeah. it out of love. You, right, exactly. And, you're, and, totally see, and see, and that's it, Sue. I, I think the way we have this set up, it puts way too much burden on, on the family members who understand. I mean, you're, you're really trying to do what, what's best for your parents, your grandparents, or, or whatever. You're, you're living in fear, though, that, that something could happen. But I look, I get it. Nobody wants exactly. to give up their driver's license, so there's this huge fight back. And so you, by trying to be the responsible person, you become the, the, bad, the bad guy in the story. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Yes. Th- no. Th- thanks for calling. Appreciate it. And I guess it, it's kind of troubling to me that if I, boy, I would be upset with the doctor if I got this note. If if I got a diagnosis that uh, your your mom or your dad or your grandpa or whatever is suffering from dementia, and then the family members go in and say, "We want you to tell the DMV that they shouldn't be driving because he just doesn't know where he or she is," and the doctor refused to do it because he didn't want to alienate or irritate the patient. I would not be happy with that. Let's talk to Claire in Pewaukee. Claire, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Well, hello. I'm Jeff Agner. It is my pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. Okay. Well, we're glad you called. Okay. What do you want to What do you want to say? <laughs> I'm pushing eighty nine. I'm still driving, but I have a pact with my daughter. You go with me every couple of weeks and ride with me. And you see how I'm driving. If you don't think I'm driving good, make my car disappear. <laughs> God bless you, Claire. That's <laughs> that. Now let me ask you this: So, do you do you think what I'm talking about is unfair? Saying that just you know not at all. Okay, got it. No, got it. I've got through it with my dad. He was a hundred years old. He could talk. He could walk. He could hear. He, he was like he was 70 years old, but he still had his driver's license at 100. Mm-hmm. Did he drive? Yes, but out in the country. He would not drive in the city of Milwaukee. When I would go to get him, I would drive, and he would right. say to me, I'm glad I don't have to drive in this traffic. <laughs> but, but he was 100 and still had a good driver's license. My so I, gu- I, I never thought that was right. My guess, Claire, is you probably have a couple friends, and I'm not going to name ask you to name names on the radio or anything like that, but you have probably have a couple friends that you wouldn't feel comfortable driving with if, if they said, okay, we're going to go out to lunch, and here, I, I'm going to drive, maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable with them, I would imagine. <laughs> well, most of my friends are dead. Okay. I have one friend who is, uh, I think she's around 74 or 75, 
a lot younger than me, and she's a horrible diver. But she's <laughs> always been a horrible diver. Claire, you, th- you you have a thank you so much for calling. You have a great afternoon. Okay, <laughs> take care. Thank you. You bet. That's it, Claire. Well, but see that, and, and that's why I'm not arguing that Claire should have to give up her driver. But see, that's the responsible way. I mean, Claire understands that there are that there are issues there. So it's like, hey, I I don't want to. I don't want to be a problem for my daughter. That this this is it. If you notice stuff, you just tell me. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are not like that, and, and that's why I think sometimes the state needs to to step in instead of waiting until there's something bad that's happened. And by the way, again, I'm getting a couple of texts from people saying, "Well, you know, why don't you talk about the reckless driving with the the 14 year olds who are driving the stolen cars?" We do that all the time on this program. Listen on a regular basis. I, I you know, the, the recklessness on, on the roadways. But this is to me, it's a little thing that you could probably do. And I'm also getting a number of texts from people who are talking about you know collisions that they've been involved in with people who candidly shouldn't have been on the road. And that's just that, that's that's just kind of the reality. And I think I think what we need to do in this state is, is help out, help out the kids, help out the people like Sue to make it easier to all right do the right thing, which is to okay, Dad shouldn't be driving. Let's make it easier to try to take that driver's license away from him, and let's not make the kids be the the bad guys or the bad gals when they do it. <laughs> This tells you how bad it must actually be, because PolitiFact has even waded in on the side of of Senator Ron Johnson. PolitiFact, which has this kind of noble idea, here, we're going to fact-check claims and stuff. Well, the problem is, in in real life, the way PolitiFact works doesn't work that way. Generally speaking, my experience has been the reporters tend to have a a huge liberal bent, and they, they take sometimes like obscure stuff and try to figure out ways to make Republican politicians look bad and ignore similar stuff for the Democrats. But but this is and look, when it comes to Ron Johnson, I understand I understand why he is a lightning rod. As I have said on this air, on this on the air on many times, I, I think sometimes Senator Johnson, who I've known since he got involved in politics, who I think votes in the correct fashion almost all the time, I think he's he's kind of gone down some rabbit holes and created some problems for himself that he didn't need to contribute. But there's this ad that's been running on television that I have been screaming about every time I see it. And it's been running for a while, so that tells me that the people that are polling on this must think it's it's getting a good reaction. It's run by, again, one of these shadowy special interest groups uh, calling itself Opportunity Wisconsin, which it's going to be either a union group or a Democratic activist group or something like that. And it opens with the words, dereliction of duty on the screen. And it features a guy identified as William B a U.S. Air Force veteran, and he looks at the camera and he says, Ron Johnson pushed through a special tax loophole that benefited his family's business. Then he cashed out of the company for $5 million, and he's doubled his wealth since taking office. And I, I remember whenever I see this, I scream at, at the, the TV going, yeah, somebody needs to really clear this up because I, I appreciate that in politics you're going to get lots of like really, really bad and misleading ads and things like that, and it comes with the territory. But this is, this is one that's just beyond the pale, and it's so bad that PolitiFact even took it on. This is what they say. It's in the paper today. It said, first of all, they say he pushed through a tax loophole. 
Well, okay, I take you back to 2017, and that's when President Trump proposed a tax overhaul that included a reduction to the corporate tax rate um, to get the measure through the Senate. Trump needed all the Republicans. Johnson said, look, I'm not going to back this measure unless you include in it um, pass-through companies, those that pass all their income to the owners or investors. This is the way most small family-structured businesses are that aren't subject to corporate tax. And they added this. And yes, it, it's true that Johnson's family-owned business fell into this category, but nevertheless, there's like 26 million other companies <laughs> across the, the country that, that, that figured this out. So this applied to like 95% of the company. So it wasn't like I'm going to try to have some loophole which is going to benefit my company. So, I mean, it's it's – it's it's bull, I guess that that's thing. And I mean, Johnson says, "Well, did I benefit? Yeah, um, but but yeah, everybody got that benefit. It's like saying, hey, I, I voted for I voted for a tax cut, and yes, my taxes were cut, but everybody else's taxes were cut as well. So you know, you you've got that. And yes, it's true, I guess, that Johnson sold his business for at least five million. But the point of this is that there was something sneaky and snaky that Johnson did to try to benefit his company. Well, okay, it, it was a major tax reform policy, and actually, what Ron Johnson did, yes, it, it benefited his business, but it benefited, like I say, millions and millions of other businesses as as well. And I think you could argue that it was just like good tax policy. So whenever you see this particular ad, just roll your eyes because to say it is misleading would be an understatement, which brings me to what I want to discuss in the last segments of the program. Uh, the, the ratings are out for um, the, the uh, first quarter, and uh, including, then, including April, uh, for, for TV. And once again, Fox News – dominates the, the, the scene. Fox News averaged 1.5 million total viewers to finish as the only network to—this would be cable network—as the only network to surpass the 1 million viewer benchmark. And it wasn't even close. MSNBC, which was number two um, as far as, like, in the news department, they had, like, 668,000 viewers. So the, less than half of the numbers of, of viewers of— of MSNBC. During the primetime hours of 8 to 11, in April, for example, Fox News beat the NBA playoffs on, on TNT. It was just kind of sort of staggering. And CNN is is a, a very, very uh, distant kind of third. And it, it's pretty much true across the board. So for everybody that complains about, oh, Fox News this, Fox News that, the, the truth is they're getting eyeballs, and they're getting lots of eyeballs, much more so than MSNBC, and much, much, much more so than, than CNN. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I was thinking about this not from, you know, what what do you watch necessarily, but more from a why perspective. And I guess I, I am curious. When it comes to news, 
you know, it, it really has evolved. When I was a kid growing up, there was a morning newspaper, there was an afternoon newspaper, and I've always been a news junkie, and you had three three networks, pretty much, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then, you know, you, you could also watch, I guess, the PBS channel. So maybe, let's make it four networks. But that's where you got your news. It was the newspaper. This was before Al Gore invented the internet, and it was a couple broadcast TV stations. Now, You've got everything that's on cable. You've got the the main broadcast networks. You've got newspapers that are still around, even though they're kind of disappearing. You've got the Internet. You've, of course, got radio. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where do you get most of your news from and, and why? By why I mean, you know, why do you choose that? Why do you choose one site as a, one station over another? Why do you choose one? Hey, I go to the New York Times website. That's that's where I read it. Why why do you choose one source over another when you've got all these different choices that are out there? Where do you get your news and why? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. Okay, the, the latest TV ratings are in, and, and Fox News among cable channels wins big time. Nothing's Nothing's even close, but it has. It gets me thinking about where you are getting your news from. Now, for me, I'm a news junkie, and partially because of what I do for a living, I don't get a lot of news, for example, from TV. Because, but when I go home in the evening after, you know working and preparing for a show for hours and hours and like scouring the internet and looking at all these different websites for news and then doing the show, I, I'm kind of, here, I want to watch the ball game. That, that's sort of me. So I don't get it as much from electronic sources as other people do, but there's no question that's out there. Where do you get your news? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Greg. Greg, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Greg. Hello. Yeah, you're on the air. Yeah, Where? I'm there. Can you hear me? I can. Good. We uh, get our news from the local TV stations, and then we fight over Fox and CNN. <laughs> you, you, you being you and your spouse. Who, who, who's, who's Fox? Who's CNN? Yes. Who, who's Fox? Who's CNN? I'm the Fox, and she, <laughs> she's the CNN. I'm the Fox. Got it. Thanks for calling. Okay, well, that's that. That's it. I, I know people are are passionate about that. I mean, I have several. I have several friends who are, you know, adamant Fox viewers, and, you know, they'll, they'll always call me up to say what they've seen on it. And I, I just, like I say, it, it's not anti-Fox. It's not, I mean, I wouldn't really watch MSNBC, uh, but but it's kind of like, uh, again, I, w- I kind of want to watch the ball games in the evenings. But I know Fox is very popular. James on the South Side. James, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, uh, Jeff. Um, I watch uh, NBC, uh, regular NBC, and um uh, ABC, and I listen to you guys uh, on radio there to get some of the local news too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and listen to your state, listen to you, uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, digest and everything else and that. But I don't know. I don't uh, watch cable. I get, even though I got cable TV, I don't watch the uh, cable news uh, things unless it's going to be you know more politics or more types of things that are going to be. I don't. I don't know the stuff that you maybe yeah. it's not digesting from the regular local uh, things yeah. there, but. Uh, you guys do a good job and everything else. You know, we gotta, you know, we gotta look look around. You know, variety is the spice of life, isn't it? It, it is. No, James, thanks for calling. Matter of fact, I, I think, for example, I think our news department does a, a good job. Okay, Jeff, I get my news from six a.m. six twenty. Well, thank you. We like that, um, Jeff. I like. I think for the most part, Fox News draws in people whose minds are already made up. Um, yeah, I, I think that there. I, I think there's a lot of. 
I think there's a lot of reinforcement that goes on, and, and I think if you have a particular worldview, okay, and, and it's and it's buttress, buttress why but you're on Fox, you're, you're attracted to Fox. Same thing true of, of MSNBC. So I think there's there is an element for that. Jeff, for me, it's mostly Fox News. Um, Jeff, I'm a Democrat. I mostly watch CNN, but the truth is numbers are really small for network uh, news in general. It's just like print media. I think that our society is getting news from websites that support their particular point of view. You know, I, I have an interesting, I, I perhaps have a different perspective on that than, than most people because my, my job and has been for the last, you know, 20 plus years, uh, 27 years, full or part-time, is to come up with a, a three-hour show that, that hopefully you will find interesting and entertaining. And so what I do what I do is I look at a myriad of sources. I mean, I liberal stuff, conservative stuff, run of middle of the road stuff because I'm looking for for stories that I think I can figure out what my take is and then present it to you and then we can have a discussion and it can be interesting. So I mean I'm I'm all over the waterfront on on looking at stuff. But I, I think I understand how that's a little bit different. You don't have the time. I mean it's, it's my job. You know, you you don't have the time to read you know, 20 different websites all across. That's not what you do. You're, you're going to pick, you know, one or two websites to go to or, you know, sit down with the newspaper or, you know, 30 minutes to watch it while you're having dinner or whatever. For, for most people, it's, you know, where do you go for that information? And I think part of the thing that goes on is is that it's – you you do have a lot of the information that's out there is kind of like reinforcing and 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 there's no question that there are slants to the news. That, I mean, I sometimes I hear people try to deny it, but it it's there's just no question uh, about it. It's what gets covered and what gets emphasized, and I think there's a business element to that as well. By business element, I mean I've said this before. Like some of the big newspapers had a resurgence when Donald Trump was in office because they became the anti-Trump papers, and so every story they wrote or almost every story they wrote was a negative story on Donald Trump because it's what their audience wanted to hear. And or even if it wasn't a negative story, it had a somewhat negative spin on it because it was the business. 855-616-1620. Rome. Rome, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I watch a little bit of everything. Uh, what I try to do is get a variety of different sources so that I can make a informed opinion uh, and a decision on what's fact and what's propaganda. Uh, I watch, uh, you know, I am uh, basically a Democrat. Uh, however, I have a lot of conservative tendencies. Uh, and uh, I watch Fox News just to be able to compare it to other things that I'm hearing. And then uh, being uh, as informed as I can, I make my decision as to what I think the actual facts are. Okay, if it uh, if tonight were election night and you were going to sit home and you were going to you know watch election results, what channel do you think you would watch it on mostly? Actually, I'm gonna tell you the truth. I'll be flipping back and forth between okay. Fox and MSNBC and 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 uh, CNN because again, you know, I'm looking for the different slants and trying to see okay. if uh, you know one. Uh, one station is, is giving me something that the other one's not getting. Now, I want to say one thing, too. Uh, I talk to a lot of young people during the course of my day and my travels, and one of the things that I, that, that I think is a big problem with the news right now is so many people are using one source, and usually it's something off the Internet. You know, when, as I'm talking to people, they're like, well, you know, I get my news off of Facebook or uh, off of uh, 
uh, uh, uh, YouTube. And, and when you yeah. just get one source like that, you get a lot of propaganda and a lot of other people's opinion. And I think that the people also need to know that there's a difference between the news and the actual opinion. And if you're listening to, you know, someone like Walter Cronkite, he was giving you the news. But if you're listening to Sean Hannity, he's giving you his opinion on most things. No, I think Rome, you you make a you make an absolutely great point, and and that's that there there's there is a difference between that you know between somebody like me who's what I, I consider to be an opinion journalist that that you know I, I I report stories sometimes, but I'm giving you my opinion on that. That's what I'm paid for, which is different than say what our my colleague Mike Spalding does. He's a news reporter. All right, um, when we come back, John McCure and Jane Matinair are down in the Deer District. The Bucks are playing a game tonight. We'll talk to them.